The strange writing on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. Now, this script was used for hundreds of years in ancient history. Here, international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. So America and uh, the New World Order and you and me today, tomorrow, that's what we're going to look at tonight. There's a lot of talk over many years now about a global New World Order. Probably one of the most recent uh, or the first of, of, of recent people talking about this was probably Winston Churchill, famous, of course, for the Second World War and the defeat of of the Nazis and so on. But of course, more recent times, we've had George Bush Sr. He talked a lot about that, especially around the time of Gulf War number one. In more recent times, we've even had uh, Mr. Putin talking about it. He's mentioned this just a year or two back, talking about a global new world order. Well, I guess it means different things to different people and to different politicians. But let me say that the idea of a global New World Order is not foreign to the Bible, especially when it comes to the end of time. I'm going to talk about two world orders this weekend. Don't miss tomorrow's program as part of 666, which we'll be talking about. But the Bible also mentions a global New World Order. Now, you will remember these three beasts that we've been mentioning. Three beasts, the dragon, a sea beast, and a land beast. If you like, this is the biblical picture of a global new world order and it unfolds for us in an amazing way in the book of revelation especially chapter 13 and tomorrow we'll unpack even more of what this is all about now you will remember that these three powers seek global worship or allegiance we noticed that last weekend but let's notice the passage we looked at from the book of revelation and all the world marveled and followed the beast that's the sea beast so they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast and it says they worshipped the beast. He, the land beast, causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. you got the picture, haven't you? Worship, worship, worship. That's a religious word. In fact, Sir Arnold J. Toynbee noted that the great events of the world impact on the spiritual sphere of life. They have always done that. If you think about recent global conflicts, you will notice the North Island problem was between Protestant and Catholic. You go to up to, uh, to uh, the Himalayan area, Kashmir, between the Muslims and the Hindus. Wherever you go on planet Earth, most of the conflicts have a religious basis to them. Not all of them, but many of them, in fact. And the Bible indicates as we near the end of time, this is going to be one of the great issues that will confront people. The issue of worship, a spiritual issue, the Bible says. So who are these three beasts? We've already identified the dragon, haven't we? Way back in our second week, or the first week I think it was, we noticed this being is this one that is called Satan in the Bible. Many people don't think he exists, and he's happy about that, but the Bible is very clear. Jesus the Christ was very clear about that right through Scripture. This being is mentioned. Now, what about these other two? What about the sea beast and the land beast? Tonight, we're going to identify those. We're going to go back to university history, 
to current events, as you're going to see, as we seek to understand what these two powers are all about. So let's begin with the beast that comes up out of the sea. Notice what John saw in Revelation. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth, you'll notice, is like the mouth of a lion. The Bible says the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Very clear here, isn't it? This power here. You will notice this beast has some parts of an animal of animals we've seen in a previous program. Notice the mouth like a lion, feet like a bear, like a leopard, and so on. We've seen these in Daniel chapter 7 last weekend. There was a lion, there was a bear, there was a leopard. Now these all come on one beast, a composite beast, if you like, in the book of Revelation. Why is John doing this? Because John is kind trying to get our attention to go back to the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, which we saw last weekend. You see, there's a close link we've noticed in the past between Daniel and the Revelation. Jesus the Christ said, study the book of Daniel. He's the one who gave the book of Revelation. These two books of the Bible, both dealing with the end time issues, are very important to the world today. So John is wanting us to think the book of Daniel, all combined on this sea beast now. Now you remember, there was a little horn on that beast, the fourth beast in Daniel 7. Now what we're going to notice this evening is that this beast that comes up out of the sea with a mouth like that of a lion, looks like a leopard, feet like a bear, this beast is actually the same power as the little horn on that fourth beast that we saw last week. In other words, this is the medieval or the dark age church that John is bringing to light here in the book of Revelation. Only now he's going to give us more information. You see, as you go through the books of Daniel and the Revelation, we have these great prophecies that are given, but each one that follows goes over the same time usually, but more details are given from a different angle. So let's notice there, tonight we're going to see six identifying characteristics of this sea beast that help us to see very clearly that this is the medieval dark age church of the book of Daniel. Number one, John says, when he gives us the first identifying characteristic, he says that this power arose in a populated region of planet Earth. Let's notice the passage, what he says here. Revelation 13. He says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, he says. This beast clearly came out of the briny waters of the ocean having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now, you will notice in Bible prophecy that seas or waters represent regions of large population. We have that given to us right here in Revelation itself. Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, and next weekend we will talk about the prostitute riding a scarlet-coloured beast. And John gives us in that vision this principle, this symbol of the sea representing population regions. Notice what he says. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot or the prostitute sits, he says, those waters are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. 
large population masses, if you like, masses of people. So this beast arises out of a large population area. Now, of course, as we've seen some of the history before, that's exactly what happened with the medieval Dark Age Church. It came from there in Rome, there in what we call Italy today. It arose in that populated region of planet Earth because this was and has been for many centuries a relatively large populated region compared to other places on planet Earth. Number two, ancient Rome gave it its power. Notice what John says, the dragon gave him his power, his throne and great authority. And yes, I thought the dragon was Satan. Yes, of course it is. But we've also noticed in these series of programs that Satan always uses fronts. He doesn't come along with a pitchfork and two horns and a pointy tail. He uses powers. And who was the power that he was using at this time? Notice the dragon, as we've said, always uses fronts. We saw Tyre. The king of Tyre was a front in the book of Ezekiel. The snake was a front for the dragon when he tempted Adam and Eve. And now we notice ancient Rome, because when we go to Revelation 12, John shows us the power that is very active that Satan uses back in the first century. You will notice it was a Roman official who tried Jesus Christ called, sorry, who tried to kill the baby Jesus Christ, I should say, Herod. It was a puppet king of the Romans. It was a Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who condemned Jesus to death. It was Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus Christ and Roman soldiers guarded his tomb. And we noticed back when we looked at Revelation 12 that the dragon stood in front of the woman to devour the child. Was it Satan himself? No, he was using fronts. And in this case, it was ancient Rome. Now, it's very interesting when we go to to history books, they tell us very clearly that this is exactly what took place. To the succession of the Caesars, following the Roman uh, Caesars, came the succession of the pontiffs in Rome. When Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat or his power to the pontiff or the bishop of Rome. Notice this from Professor Labianca, the history department of the University of Rome itself. Now, you remember, we noticed a couple of times now that barbaric tribes attacked the Roman Empire in the western part of it, the western part where Europe eventually came out of. Now, the Romans moved their capital to Constantinople or made their capital in Constantinople. The first, of course, to do that was Constantine. He moved his headquarters to what we call Istanbul today. And other other Caesars did the same thing who followed him. And that became the center of the Roman Empire now in Turkey. So they left a vacancy in the western part of the Roman Empire. Now, that's what Stanley's history tells us. The popes or the bishops of Rome filled the place of the vacant emperors of Rome, inheriting their power and their prestige and their titles from paganism. So, in other words, it was the church leaders who took over the power of the emperors who once ruled in the area of ancient Rome. You can see this very clearly even today. Here we are at the Church of St. John of Laterano. I love to come here. I bring people here when I take tours to Italy because it illustrates it very simply for us. Just up here on this top left-hand corner 
of this church. It's called the Church of the Popes. You can see because of the bishops up the top there, uh, various bishops. You will notice this circle here. This here says Clemens Twelfth Pontifex Maximus. This man was a bishop of Rome back in the past, but you notice he takes the title Pontifex Maximus. Pontifex Maximus was one of the titles of the Roman emperors. And this title was taken over by the church leaders. Exactly, that's what Stanley is saying in his history, you see. And you can see that in different places in Rome when you visit today. You've probably seen some of these great big obelisks that they brought from Egypt on those as oftentimes Pontifex Maximus, referring to church leaders, because this was one of the titles of the emperors of Rome. You can even see that in uh, Pope Benedict's medallion he had struck uh, for the, the anniversary of the Lateran Treaty and so on. You notice his title here, Pontifex Maximus. He takes the title. This was once one of the titles of the Roman emperors. So this is what Stanley is talking about. The Church of Rome claims to be the Church of Rome because they inherited their power and so on from the old Roman Empire. This is certainly no uh, apology from the church. They believe they are the succession to the old Roman emperor, Empire back then. Now, ancient Rome gave the church of Rome its power. That's what John is saying. That would move to the church of Rome. Now, John also says this power would rule for 1260 years. Notice what he says here in Revelation chapter 13. He was given authority says John, to continue for 42 months. Now you say, how do you get 1260 years from 42 months? Well, let's notice how we do that. In the Bible, a biblical month was 30 days, not like ours, 31 or 30, 30 days. And every now and again, they would add an extra month uh, to their calendar, bring it back in line with the, with the sun and so on. Solar year. So the biblical month was 30 days, 42 months. You multiply 42 by 30 and you will get 1260 days. And we've seen this a number of times. In fact, you go to the book of Daniel, you go to the book of Revelation. Both of these books mention this period of time. And here it is, 1260 days. Now we've noticed in the past, one prophetic day represents one literal year. Now someone asked the question, does this everywhere in the Bible? No, just in in the prophecy of the Bible, one prophetic day, one literal year. We get the principle from a prophecy given to Ezekiel, a contemporary of Daniel back in Babylon. And we've seen that before. I've laid on you a day for each year. And we talked about that. So 1260 days, it, it represents 1260 years, you see. So this power would be in control for 1260 years. Now, we noticed last week, in fact, that in 538 AD, the Emperor Justinian, who was ruling in Constantinople or Istanbul, he added political power to the Bishop of Rome's religious authority in 538 AD. This was able to go into effect. Now, exactly 1260 years later, that would bring us to the year 1798. And we know from history that the medieval or the Dark Age church dominated Western Europe for 1260 years. You can even see that. If you go into St. Peter's Cathedral yourself, they have these great columns and you can see uh, stories are told on some of those columns. 
And you can see the tremendous power that the church wielded way back in the Dark Ages. For example, there was a king of Europe who wanted to come and have an audience with the Bishop of Rome, and he was told by the Bishop of Rome, you wait outside for three days, and he waited in the snow for three days till the Bishop of Rome was ready to see him. Tremendous power that the church had through this period of time. Historians note that very clearly, where if you go to university history libraries, you can pick these up in in those books. Now, number four, it would persecute God's people, John tells us. It was granted to him to make war with the saints, that's God's people, and to overcome them. So here the church, sadly, John is, is telling us, would persecute, just like Daniel mentioned. And we noticed that in the Dark Ages or the medieval period, many faithful priests, many faithful bishops, and uh, lay people in the Church of Rome sadly were, were killed simply because they wanted to read the Bible. You know, it was forbidden to translate the Bible into the languages of the people back in the medieval period. Men were killed for that. Faithful priests, they wanted to put the Bible in the languages of the people. The church, sadly, during this time did not want them to do that because, of course, if people read the Bible and then saw what was happening in the church, they would see very clearly that something's not right here. And sadly, at this time, people did not want others to know about that. And so many priests uh, lost their lives simply for either reading the Bible to the people or translating it into the languages of the people. What a a sad period in the history of the world when people could not even read the Bible. It was only understood by those who could read Greek or Latin. And so many people lost their lives. And you could go to places in Europe where many people you can see where they were killed simply for preaching about Jesus and so on. Now, that's why Pope John Paul II uh, made a very honest uh, confession here back in... uh, a few years ago now, the act of contrition, it says in the Jubilee year, I mentioned this last week, I think, and the season of Lent, Pope John Paul confronted the Crusades where sadly the church killed Muslims back in those times, as you remember the Crusades. The Inquisition, this is the, 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 the killings during the medieval period, the Holocaust during the Second World War and so on, and the other horrors in seeking to express regret for sins committed by the Catholics or the church in the past 2,000 years. That's Time magazine. So you can see this is openly acknowledged by the church and mentioned many times in history books. Number five, it would receive a deadly wound, John says. Notice what John said. He said, and I saw one of his heads. He says, one of his heads, as it were, as if it had been mortally wounded, a deadly wound, if you like. Now, you remember in 538 AD, the Emperor Justinian gave the Bishop of Rome political power. Now, in 1798, we mentioned last week, Napoleon's General Berthier marched into the Vatican and captured the Bishop of Rome and exiled him to France. And I took you to Valence, where he was in prison. It's very interesting when you read the correspondence of the next Bishop of Rome, Pope Pius VII, and notice in his one of his letters, he referred to this event of the capture of the Pope as a deadly wound. Even the Bishop of Rome seems to be referring back to the book of Revelation right here in chapter 13, because that's exactly where that statement comes from, a deadly wound. He referred to that capture in that way. 
A few years later, Garibaldi, in his revolution there in Italy, between 1866 and 1870, he caused the church of Rome to be stripped of much of her vast lands. You see, the Church of Rome had lots of lands throughout Europe and especially in Italy. And now Garibaldi, he stripped the church of those lands and made them, uh, gave them back to the people, the state. The bishop in, of Rome, in fact, was in reality a prisoner in the Vatican. That's where he was sort of in prison uh, from the time of Garibaldi and so on. So people, when they saw these events, what happened in 1798 and worse to follow as a result of those great events, this is what historians said back then. They said this is the end of the Church of Rome or the medieval church. It's finished. It will never come back to power. It's had its day and now it's finished. It's ruled for 1260 years, but it's over. That's exactly what people were saying back at those times. But John did not say that. John indicated that this deadly wound would be healed. Notice the language that John uses right here in Revelation 13. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So John indicated that no, this deadly wound would be healed and the whole world would marvel and follow this beast. Now, we go back to a very interesting event that took place just before the Second World War. Mussolini, the Italian dictator, signed a concordat with Cardinal Gaspari from the from the Vatican. And this was known as a tremendous event because what did it mean? It simply meant this, that now the Vatican was a separate country within Italy. Up until this time, he had been a prisoner in Italy, if you like, locked down in the Vatican, so to speak. But now from this time on, it meant that the Bishop of Rome and the Vatican was a separate country in Italy, no longer part of Italy. And this happened during the time of Mussolini, 1929. And we have famous street down there in Rome that runs right into St. Peter's and uh, referring to this great um, Lateran Concordat. Now, the Vatican was now an independence country in Italy. That was the significance of this. In fact, newspapers like the San Francisco Chronicle, notice the language they used when this took place back in 1929. They called it, the mortal wound is healed. It seems that the newspapers are even referring back to the 13th chapter of the book of Revelation. The healing of the wound, they said. It's all fixed up. It's going to be uh, going back to uh, what it once was. Now, you think about the tremendous influence that has taken place in the last uh, 70, 80 years now or more. You think of the first 12 years of Pope John Paul's reign. Pope John Paul II, he was loved by many, many people. He was called the globe-trotting Pope, wasn't he? You remember that back then. Think of what happened when John Paul was in charge. He visited 90 nations. That's a lot of countries to visit when you're a leader. Not only that, he was seen or heard by 3.5 billion people. That's about half the world's population. Very interesting. Not only that, you think of the tremendous global political power that the Church of Rome wields today. It's enormous. You know, there are 176 nations at least now who have diplomatic relations with the Vatican. Now, you don't have diplomatic relations unless that power is a political power. 
That's what diplomats are all about. But that's right around the world almost getting up towards 200 nations have diplomatic relations with the Vatican today. And no matter who the world leader is, sooner or later, people want to have an audience with the Bishop of Rome, right? Sooner or later, you, you, you watch the news, no matter what country you're from. Even if you don't believe in the same religious beliefs, it doesn't matter. Even if you're not a religious person, a tremendous power today. In fact, Kurt Voltheim, former United Nations Secretary General, back in 1979 when the Bishop of Rome visited the United States and came to the United Nations, he said, this is one of my greatest experiences, he said. I noticed this in Foreign Policy magazine. This is a journal for the diplomatic corps. In other words, for those who are diplomats. An article was in the in this journal was entitled Papal Foreign Policy. I want you to notice what it said, talking of the uh, the uh, papers the the uh, period of John Paul II. This is the most activist papacy in modern history, said this journal. And not only that, it said these words: Not since the Middle or the Dark Ages can a comparably broad conception of papal activity be found. You won't find anything as grand as what we're seeing today as what we had, except back in the what we call the Middle Ages. In fact, notice what it said: The Vatican acts like a state, but not simply a state. It's a religion as well. This was papal foreign policy. A magazine doc written by Brian Heher, Professor of Ethics and International Politics at Georgetown State, uh, sorry, Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. You can see this is spoken about by people who are knowing what they're talking about here. I find this fascinating, even, even more fascinating. This book I have in my library uh, called The Keys of This Blood. The reason it's significant is this is written by a former a Jesuit priest in the Church of Rome and a devout member of the church today still. But notice what this man said of what was taking place during John Paul II's reign. He said, listen, in secular eyes, the Roman church stands alone. The Pope is by definition the world's first fully fledged geopolitical leader. Now, here's a member of the Church of Rome itself pointing this out very clearly, what others are saying as well. What about global religious power? We certainly see it on the political front. I mean, even our own prime ministers, when they come and go, they all generally have an audience with the Bishop of Rome and around the world. But what about on the religious scene? What are we seeing here today? I was fascinated to look at the Assisi Prayer Summit some years ago. Now, I think it's good when Christians from different uh, groups pray together. I think that's good. I'm not against that. But I'm simply using this to show that nobody else could have pulled this off by, but except one man on planet Earth. No one else could have done this. You see who turned up at the Assisi Prayer Conference. 160 leaders and representatives of divergent groups of belief. Even the Red Indians showed up. The Muslims and the Buddhists showed up. You know, people showed up at this conference called by the Bishop of Rome. Jews and Muslims were there, Buddhists and Sikhs were there, Anglicans and Orthodox Christians, Reformed churches, Protestant churches, World Council of Churches. This is amazing, but the tremendous influence of the Bishop of Rome. I am amazed at a statement like this. This is the leader or the former leader of the Anglican Church worldwide. This is the leader, over 70 million people. For the universal church, says this leader of the Anglican Church, I renew the plea. 
Could not all Christians, no matter what denomination, could not all Christians come to reconsider the kind of primacy the Bishop of Rome exercised within the early church? He says, listen, in the past, the Bishop of Rome was number one bishop. Couldn't all Christians recognize that leadership? A presiding of love for the sake of the unity of the churches in the diversity of their mission. What an amazing statement from a leader of the Anglican Church. Could not we all recognize the Bishop of Rome? John was right when he said all the world would follow. Not only that, you may recall back in 2009, I think it was, when Pope Benedict invited Anglicans to leave the Church of England and to join the Church of Rome again. You may remember that. It caused a tremendous upheaval around the world, especially among Anglicans. Immediately, five bishops in England jumped ship and joined the Church of Rome. And this article is written in in, in the United States, and the gentleman is commenting on this, what happened back in 2009. I want you to notice his language. Like the falling of the Berlin Wall in 1989. In other words, that caught everybody off guard. Nobody expected the wall to come tumbling down overnight, which was what happened, literally. He says, like the falling of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the possibility that the Catholic Church of the English, which means the Anglican Church of the English, might finally come home to Rome, the Church of Rome, in my lifetime was paralyzing. He says, I never thought it would happen. This, he says, is an earthquake. The dead end of the Reformation is now apparent. What's this man saying in the uh, the bulletin, Philadelphia's family newspaper back in 2000? What's he saying? He's saying this is the end of Protestantism. That's what he's saying, the Protestant Reformation. It's finished. I tell you, there's some significant things happening on our planet today in the religious sphere. Now, this one, I guess, this is surprising because notice this is the lead, one of the leaders of the Lutheran Church. Of course, this is where Martin Luther came. The, church of, the Lutheran Church was established as this priest was pushed out of the Church of Rome. The Protestant Reformation says this man, was meant as a movement for reform within the one holy apostolic church. That's correct. Martin Luther did not want to leave. The moment has come, he says, when we must say that the denunciations at the time of the Reformation are no longer valid. Excuse me? What he's really saying is Martin Luther got it wrong? And yet this man is a Lutheran bishop. I tell you, my friend, something is happening in our world on the religious front. Not just politically are people following, but even religious people are moving in a new direction today. And John said that. In fact, the current bishop of Rome, his great theme in his pontificate is unity that leads to unification. In fact, my daughter and my son-in-law were in Israel a couple of years ago and they shot me this by their iPhone and this is his theme, you notice here, so that they may be one. At this time, Pope Francis was visiting Israel, so that they may be one. This is his great uh, theme of his pontificate. I was fascinated when this came out about two years ago. Here is one of the great leaders in what we would call the... the um, the charismatic churches, the Protestant charismatic churches. Kenneth Copeland has a TV ministry, 
and uh, he uh, had a, a, a great meeting for all the different Pentecostal leaders in America a couple of years ago, and a man from the Anglican Church, a bishop of the Anglican Church, had was a friend of Pope Francis and went to pay him a visit in Rome, and he said, why don't you send a message to this Protestant conference that's going to take place. And so Pope Francis, on his iPhone, sent a message. And then this was played to this Protestant leaders, uh, at the Protestant leaders meeting. And uh, it was basically a call for saying, listen, we're all one, we're all brothers, why don't we all sort of come close together and so on and so forth. And a standing ovation. Now, I'm just simply pointing out something is changing, something is happening. And many people, no matter what denomination, are seeing some things. We're seeing some things happening that John talked about. How did John put it? And all the world marveled and followed. If ever there were some true words today, if ever you want to see that something is taking place today, these are clear words of deadly wound. And even the Bishop of Rome recognized that. A healing of a womb and a news, wound in a newspaper recognizes. Now we see today that politically, religiously, the world is moving in a very interesting direction that John had predicted so long ago. What about the beast from the land now? That's the beast from the sea. It's very clear. Six clear identifying characteristics. John gave those 2,000 years ago. How did he know? And we're seeing it today. Because the Bible is no ordinary book. Its prophecies are dependable. We've seen those dealing with ancient civilizations, but here we have one happening right under our noses today, my friend. God's word is so true. Its prophecies are so dependable. Now the second beast. The beast from the land. John tells us as we go to see what he has here. Then I saw another beast, John says, coming up out of the earth. First one came up out of the briny ocean, remember? This one's coming up in a contrast place. He comes up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, so it looks pretty good, but he spoke like a dragon, John says, in this uh, concerning this beast. Now, this beast here now that we're going to look at, this beast represents Protestant United States of America. And now I'm going to show you from the book of Revelation Another five clear identifying characteristics. Number one, John says it arises in a relatively populated region, relatively unpopulated region, I should say. How do we get that? Let's go back. John says, then I saw another beast coming up out of the sea. We remember the first beast, what? It came up out of, sorry, out of the land. This one comes up out of the land. The first one came out of the sea. We notice that by going back to Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, that the seas represents large masses of people, large population areas. But this one is not coming up out of the sea. He's coming up in contrast to the sea, the land, the very opposite, a relatively unpopulated region. Let me talk about America for a moment. Uh, uh, This is history 101 of the United States of America. Pilgrim fathers, numbers of people started to migrate, if you like, from the old world, which was Europe, to the new world back in the 1600s. The pilgrim fathers came here in 1620. Why did they do this? Because of religious intolerance in the old world. People were being persecuted because they had a Bible. 
Bibles were being burnt. The Bishop of Durham burnt some 3,000 Bibles on one occasion that had been translated into English by William Tyndale, a great man of God. Now, people didn't like to be under that persecution, so many started to move to the what we call the New World, the Americas, North America especially, as far as we're concerned here. This is where they migrated to. The Pilgrim Fathers came here. 1620, they migrated to this place themselves. Now, at this time, when they migrated, there were only about one million Native Americans in 1620 when these people, the Pilgrim Fathers, moved from England and from Holland, where they began. One million people on that vast area where today, of course, there's over nearly 300 million people living there today, a very relatively unpopulated part of the planet compared to the old world of Europe. Now, even when they had the War of Independence began in 1776, there were still only three million people on all of North America. So you can see very clearly why this beast is said to come up out of the land, not the sea, an area of populated uh, masses of population. Number two, it arises around 1798. John says, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. Why does he say then? Well, we must look at the context. You will notice this is Revelation 13, 11. What's been happening in the previous verses that John should say then, at that time? Well, let's go back and look at what he's just talked about. He's talking about the sea beast in verses 9 and 10. He, the sea beast, who leads into captivity, he will go into captivity. He who kills with the sword, like the sea beast has been doing, he must be killed with the sword. What's John referring to? He's referring to that deadly wound. He said that he would receive a deadly wound. Why does he get a deadly wound? Well, he says, if you take the sword, you perish with the sword. You killed with the sword. You take people into captivity like the church sadly did in the Dark Ages, then you go into the captivity. So this power that had persecuted, now it receives a deadly wound. He must be killed with the sword. And at that time, when this power is receiving a deadly wound, around that time, John says, Then, at that time, I saw another beast coming up out of the land. Now, the Pilgrim Fathers and others, as we said, established their colonies in in America, in North America, uh, around 1620 and onwards. They migrated more and more. Then the American War of Independence was won in 1783. George Washington and all that. The United States Constitution was formed in 1789. We are moving progressively to the end of the 18th century, the 1700s. And that's the very time when John sees a beast receiving a wound. Another one is coming up at that time. One power was going down in 1798. Another was rising on time, just as John Predicted. Number three, a global political and economic superpower. This power would be. How do we know? Because in Revelation chapter 13, John says, He causes all to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name 
of the beast or the number of his name. And we'll look at the mark of the beast and 666 and all of that tomorrow afternoon. You must not miss that program. We're going to see clearly what's taking place in our own time. So here is a superpower that John is talking about. You see, you can take nations around this time and say, well, was it Australia? Because, I mean, we started to emerge around this time, but would you call us a superpower? I'm, I'm patriotic, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not like that. This is not us, is it? We're not a superpower. What about China? Yeah, great. Wrong time period, really, and certainly wrong place. A populated region, not what, what the Bible would call the earth. What about some other nation? You see, only one nation fits all these things. A great superpower. I noticed what Time magazine had on the eve of the new millennium. I said an interesting statement. No other nation has exercised such military, such economic, such diplomatic and cultural reach. And he goes on to say, since the ancient Roman Empire. America, he says, bestrides the world like a colossus. And it's true. You know, even you think militarily, economically, just about every nation, what do we compare ourselves with? The U.S. dollar. Uh, culturally, our kids, you know, you watch how the kids have been wearing their caps and back to front and a whole bunch of other stuff. We are impacted by American culture around the world. I was in Samoa a few years ago. Um, I was teaching in Fiji and we used to have these conferences and we went to Samoa and this dear lady, doctor of uh, education, and she was bemoaning the fact that Samoan culture was changing to be like Western culture. And she was saying, we've got to change it. I thought, nice try, lady, but try it when the kids and, the, and everybody's watching Hollywood and so on, you're up. <laughs> you're up against it if you're trying to try to think you're going to stop this cultural tidal wave tsunami that's sweeping the world no matter where you go i go to the middle east it's the same thing there the, all cultures have been influenced largely a lot by the american culture america bestrides the world like a colossus oh yes yeah, she's got some powers that vie for her but still number one even in our world number four john says it joins forces with the sea beast not only a global economic superpower that can cause people not to buy or sell it has that sort of clout john says this power joins forces with the beast from the sea he exercises john says all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So here, these two powers are going to work together, God says, as we near the end of time in quite a significant way, the two coming together and one trying to push the agenda of the other. You may have read the article on front page the cover story of Time magazine back around 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down and communism collapsed in Europe. Holy Alliance, Time magazine, what were they saying? They were telling us, showing us how that it was an alliance between the Vatican and Washington that brought down East European communism. You remember, started in Poland there because 95% of the people in Poland belonged to the Church of Rome and America lent its its political aid and its, 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 its help to the Vatican, and together they caused the East European communism to collapse, the Holy Alliance. Incredible. I think probably this is one of the most significant pictures you will ever see 
today that illustrates right what we're talking about tonight. Here we have past presidents of the United States of America, George Bush Sr., George Bush Jr., Bill Clinton, kneeling in front of the coffin of Pope John Paul himself lying in state there. Now, think about it, this image. Here is Protestant leaders of Protestant America. There they are paying homage to a former bishop of Rome, a country that started because people wanted to get away from religious intolerance in the old world, moved to the new world. And here we have this incredible picture which says it all and summarizes very much what John is talking about in this point. We are seeing even these two powers coming closer together as time goes on. Number five, it makes an image of the beast, John says. This beast from the sea forms an image of the beast from the land. Bible says he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs or miracles which he was granted to do. You mustn't miss the program next week. Global demonic dimensions, night cry. We will drop in on some of these incredible things that are taking place today. These signs and wonders which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Telling, he says, those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and he lived. Now, if you've done any history on the medieval church, you will know that the medieval church gained its power in the Dark Ages because of a church-state alliance. It allied itself to the government. That's how the church was able to wield such enormous power. They used religion to manipulate political leaders. Let me give you an illustration just quickly. In the old world, in the medieval period, Sometimes the church would put a city under what they called interdict, which simply meant if the political leader wasn't following what the Bishop of Rome wanted him to do, they could sometimes say interdict, which meant this, no baptisms, no burials in churches, uh, in church grounds, no weddings and so on, and all of this. In other words, they would shut the city down religiously. Now, of course, the people who were very superstitious in the Dark Ages, they would say to the leader, you better toe the line or we're going to oust you. (laughs) And this sort of thing happened often in the medieval period. By the way, that's why the French Revolution took place, because the the, the bishops of the church in, in France were in bed with the political leaders, if we can put it that way. They were both feathering each other's nests, and the people finally said, we've had enough. And they rebelled against the government and they rebelled against the church. And that's one of the reasons we have the French Revolution. It attacked the church and it attacked the state because of this alliance. So the state and and religion got together and that's how the church was able to wield enormous power in the Dark Ages itself. Now John says, as we near the end of time, that's what's going to happen in Protestant America. That great nation who started off with two horns like a lamb is going to speak like a dragon. In other words, it's going to turn as time goes on. Now, you may want to think about this for a moment. Protestant America, as it's going to be, form an image to the beast of Rome, something similar. You will notice on this beast, John says, we read it earlier. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and he spoke like a dragon. In Bible prophecy, the horns represent strength, 
Sometimes they represent a power itself, but they represent the, 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 the strength of something because they push with their horns. You read that in the scriptures. All right. Now, Protestant America was formed with a disconnect or a wall between church and state. They did not want this church-state alliance in the American Constitution. They had seen the tremendous damage it did in the old world. By the way, the same thing happened in Russia. That's why the czars were in bed with the Orthodox Church leaders, and that's why communism actually came to power, because the people there said we've had enough as well back in the early 1900s. A war between church and state. You see, the American Constitution said this, or the, 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 the uh, pioneering fathers in their constitution said, we want religious freedom. Freedom of conscience to worship how you want to worship. If you want to be a Muslim, be a Muslim. We won't bother you. If you want to be a Roman Catholic, be a Roman Catholic. We won't bother you. Want to be a Baptist? Want to be an atheist? That's your business. Religious freedom. Now, that was a new idea because in the old world, if your king was a Baptist, you had to be a Baptist. If he was an Anglican, you had to be an Anglican. If he was a Catholic, you had to be a Catholic. That's the way Europe operated. No freedom of religion back in the medieval period and as it came on into the Protestant period as well. You couldn't. There was no such thing as religious freedom. But this country said, we want to guarantee that. And they also said, listen. The people can choose their own leaders. We call it democracy, civil freedom. People choose their political leaders because in ancient, in, in old world Europe, in the old world, I should say, if you got a stupid king, you had to suffer that stupid king. He was the next one on the throne. You didn't get to choose your leaders. But now this country said the people will choose their leaders and we call it democracy today. And keep the two separate was the American constitution. This is what we see. But today, even today, we are seeing this idea of a separation between church and state in that great country is starting to unravel in the thinking of many people today. In fact, let me just share with you a statement from one of the former chief justices of the Supreme Court. This is what he had to say about this. He said, the wall of separation between church, state and church, church and state, he says, it's a metaphor based on bad history. I don't believe that idea. No, let's not, let's bring the church and the state together is what this man is advocating. And there are many today in Protestant America, including Protestants, who are pushing for that in that great country today. Protestant America, John says, we have not yet got there. Protestant America will form an image of the beast. And then you will see religious intolerance because wherever you have the church and the state linked together, let me tell you, religious tolerance follows. That's what we, the problem is in some Islamic countries, like Iran, for example, and other countries, because the church and the state are together and the church uses the government. And it happened in Christian countries in the past as well, in Europe and so on. Whether it be Protestant or Catholic, it doesn't matter. When you combine church and state, you will always get religious persecution and intolerance, no matter what the religion, no matter what the place. There is today a growing bond between Rome and Protestant United States of America. Just watch this space, my friend. We are seeing it take place today. When I see these things from the Bible, it says to me, Jesus is coming soon. We are almost home, my friend. We are moving very rapidly to the final events portrayed by John. I remember when I was living in Canberra, my family were living in Canberra. I used to have to go down south of Canberra. And uh, 
when you come from the south of Canberra and you start to climb the hill, you start to look over and I could see the lights of Canberra way off in the distance and I knew I was nearly home. And it was a good feeling late at night. I'm getting home. I'm getting home. I want to tell you, my friend, when we see this prophecy, it says to us, we're getting home. Jesus the Christ will soon come to take his people home. Sadly, many people, most people will worship the beast's image. You see, if you worship the beast's image, John says, then you worship the beast. And if you worship the beast, you worship Satan. That's what this thing is all about. That's why God's got it in this book. Not so that he can point fingers at this, that and the other thing, but so that you and I might know so that when these things come to pass, we might believe this book and we might not worship Satan. That's what this thing is all about, my friend. That's why God exposes this. That's his clear reason for sharing prophecy. Now, how can you and I go against the crowd? Because most of the people, John said, all the world followed and marveled after the beast. How can you and I go against the crowd so that we worship Christ and not Satan? I'm so glad as we close tonight that right there in the heart of this prophecy, right there in its heart, John tells us how we can stand against the crowd and we must stand against the crowd or we will be lost. How can we stand against the crowd? Look at these words. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. That's the sea beast whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Do you see it there in the heart of this great chapter? John points us to Calvary right there in this amazing prophecy. He says, listen. The book of life is the key. It's the book of life of the Lamb. It's the Lamb's book of life. The only book in the whole of Revelation where the Lamb takes it and he opens its seals, breaks its seals, we saw a couple of weekends ago. Now, notice, worship Christ. Sorry, worship Satan. That means your name is not in the book of life. If we worship Christ, it means our name is in the book of life. So the most important thing we could say tonight is this. How do you and I get our name in that book of life? Because if it's in that book of life, we will not worship the dragon. We will not worship Satan and the powers behind him. I like the way John puts it here. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. My friend, this, this evening, what are you attending this lecture for? Are you here because of some curious interest in prophecy or history or the past? My friend, God has a greater thing that you're here for. You're not here by accident. God wants you to accept his son. Because if you have the son, you have life. There is a showdown coming, as we're going to see. And only those who have the son have life, meaning they have their name in the Lamb's book of life. God wants us to accept Jesus Christ, to put our faith in him, because when we put our faith in him, we have life, and our name goes in that book of life. But not only that, John tells us in this book, names can be taken out of the book of life. If you were here on that program, on this incredible book that we saw in Revelation 5, you will remember, names can be taken out, because the Bible says, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. Yes, names can come out of the book of life. So the question then is this, how do you keep your name in that book? Let me show you how you keep your name in this book of life. It's very simple. 
Jesus spelt it out to us as we close. Abide in my love. In other words, stay with me. How do you stay with me? He said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. This is the way. If we follow Jesus, we will stay with Jesus. How do you follow it? You obey whatever Jesus tells you. My wife is here tonight. You imagine if I say to my wife every day, sweetheart, Marilyn, I love you. She says, can you put the garbage out? I say, I don't do garbage. I'm not into that stuff. So she says to me another day, she says, honey, can you wash the dishes? Sorry, I'm not into dishes. That's not my thing. And everything she asks me to do, I say, no. Do I really love her? Well, of course I don't. You see, obedience, even though sometimes we don't want to do a thing, who wants to mop up all the sick when someone you love has been spewing all over the place? You know what I mean? But we do it because we love them. And when we do something because we love, it actually draws us closer, does it not? That's what Jesus is saying. If you love me, if you keep my commandments, you'll stay in my love. You'll, that's how you continue the relationship. So how do you get your name in the book? We accept Jesus. How do you keep your name in the book? We follow Jesus. No matter what he says, do this or stop doing this, that's what we do. And that's how we stay. And that's how we will not worship Satan. Follow, obey Jesus Christ. I like the story as we close about that Negro guy Great Big Joel was his name. He was on the auction block. You can see one of these auction blocks here where they put the slaves on back in the southern part of North America when the slave trade was really going. They'd put them on this stone here, this little, like a, you know, pedestal, and they would sell them off to the people who came to buy them. Well, Joel was on the auction block one day and he was being sold. And every time that the people bid, he would look at them in the face and say, I won't work. I'm not going to work. Every time the bid went, that's what they were his word. I won't work. I won't work. And finally, an elderly white-haired gentleman won the bid. And as he was led away, Joel was led away by this man. He said, I won't work. Anyway, the guy took him to his home, back to his his homestead, nice place. And uh, the man said to him again, Joel said, I won't work. I'm not going to work. He said, Joel, I did not buy you today so that you could be my slave. He said, I bought you today so that you could be a free man. He said, there's a little house here. It's your house. You're a free man. Now, big Joel could not believe his ears. He looked at that silvery-haired old man and he looked him in the face wondering, just what was going on here, and then out of his mouth tumbled these words. He said, Master, I will work for you for the rest of my life. You see, my friends, it's love that makes the difference. When we see that God has loved us so much that he died for us, we are prepared to follow him wherever he leads. Let's bow together in prayer, shall we, as we close. Father in heaven, tonight... We have seen one of the most amazing prophecies because we, if we have eyes, we can see this is talking about what's happening in our world today. We see it on the news from time to time. Father, we thank you for bringing us here. We're not here by chance. We're not here by accident. You loved us and you knew that we needed to hear these things. That's why we're here. Oh, Lord God, we pray that you will open our hearts and our minds 
to your great love. Thank you for these prophecies made 2,000 years ago, and we are seeing them today. We believe that there is a God, and that God loves us. Thank you, Father, that you have a great heart for everyone on this planet. Tonight, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. If you want to say tonight, God, I want to be ready for that return of Jesus Christ, just raise your hand tonight. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, but you want to say, Lord, I want to be ready for the greatest event that's soon to take place when Jesus Christ comes again. I want to be on your side. I want to have my name in that Lamb's Book of Life. Just raise your hand tonight. Father, you see our hands. You care about us. Thank you so much. And thank you for these prophecies. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM. Faith FM.